I wanted to start with a question that um, just gets us thinking. Get, gets us thinking. If you had one thing that you do not want to ask for help on, what would it be? For you, if there is one area where you're like, I am never going to ask for help in this area, what would it be? Running projection, okay? Because you've done it, right? You've done it. You did it for many years, okay? Good, thank you. Men. <laughs> okay, your job. Okay, because you know what you're doing. And to ask for help is something that's difficult for us on something that we know what we're doing. What else? Ask for directions. Ask for directions. Amen. And praise God we don't have to anymore with Google. And um, <laughs> It's true. Good. Directions. And, and it's hard sometimes for men to ask for directions or for anyone, but especially those of us that know where we're going. Always. <laughs> What else? Help moving. help moving. Okay, why is that hard to ask for help for? Nobody likes to do it. Nobody likes to do it. It's like, I'm going to ask my friends to do something they don't like. And so what do we usually do when we ask for help moving? We offer food. <laughs> is, that, is that what was over here too? If you come, and we bribe. And that's okay with moving. With donuts in the morning and pizza in the afternoon. That's the, the standard fare. But it's interesting to think through why we have, tr- have trouble asking for help. I can remember one time I was, I was swimming in the ocean and I was, I was a lot younger and, and doing the whole body surfing thing. And at Huntington Beach, you can get out just beyond where you can touch. But that's where the really good waves are. And so one day, a couple of us um, from church actually went out to that area, and we couldn't touch, but we were catching some waves, and all of a sudden, a, a riptide came, a rip current came. And, but it, it didn't really suck us out, it just kept us out. And, and so for about a half hour, we were swimming, trying to get in, and we tried the whole swim sideways thing, and probably not long enough. And I can remember being out there and being exhausted, and wondering, okay, how am I going to get in? Because we were not able, we swam and we swam and we swam and tried to catch waves. And every wave we caught, the next, um, the next wave there would be a suction out before it came. And, and I remember not really panicking, but I remember the lifeguard coming out. And I did not want her help. <laughs> I wasn't drowning yet. <laughs> And, and, and several of us were out there, we're like, no, no, we're fine. As we're, we're exhausted, she goes, no, I've been watching you for a half hour. And you're struggling, and it's getting worse. And so finally, she talks us into it, and we all took turns on the little red thing that they tow back in, and, and we made it back in. But I remember thinking, why, even in that case, was it so hard to say, yeah, I'm willing to take some help? I, I'm willing... To, to take the free ride in. And finally, when I did, it was nice. I didn't have to swim in. You could just sort of relax. And... But so many times, I think we're all in that same boat. Maybe not physically at the beach. Maybe not asking for directions or anything else. But, but we have a mindset where we become very self-reliant. And, and very much, I can do this. And I can do this on my own. And maybe it's because of things like we're competent at it and we've done it a lot and it's our job. And 
Maybe it's just pride and things that get in the way that say, no, I don't need anyone else. Sort of the American way to not need anyone else and, and to, to do our own thing. This morning as we come to the text, we come to the disciples having a little bit of that same issue. A little bit of, of an issue, a lot, a lot bit of a, an issue of self-reliance. And we see where it led them because it led to failure. And, and it led to a failure that they couldn't understand and some humiliation. And, and they were at a place where they had to learn that self-reliance Whereas maybe at the beach or in directions might not be necessarily a bad thing. Some of you might differ on that. But, but self-reliance when it comes to our walk with God and when it comes to serving God and being close to God will always fail. Will always fail. Let's have a word of prayer as we dig into Mark chapter 9. Lord God, our Father, I pray that as we come to your word that you would, would strip the scales off our eyes that we could see areas where we have not trusted you, where we have relied on self. And Lord, this morning, may we learn from the disciples and not criticize them, but put ourselves in their shoes. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And if you remember last week in our text in verses 1 through 13, we had the story of the, the transfiguration. And they went up to Mount Hermon probably. And Jesus took the three inner circle disciples and, and they saw the veil of humanity stripped away briefly. And they saw a glimpse of the glory of God. And that glimpse was, was an, a way that God was showing them that He has it under control. And even with the, His coming death and the suffering, his glory is still there. He hasn't lost track of reality. He hasn't lost touch with what he can do. And, and so he gives these disciples that encouragement, that hope. And then they see Moses and Elijah. And, and if you remember the three of them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are just chatting for a long time about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, about Jesus' exodus. And the disciples are just blown away. And it was the spiritual high. This, I, I couldn't even imagine being there and seeing that a glimpse of who Christ is. You'd be just on cloud nine. And so they're coming down the mountain today. And then the text we get to today, they're coming down the mountain from the mountaintop, from the high, and they're coming down into the valley. And just like we sometimes talk about mountain highs and valley lows, that's about what's happening here. Because they come down to the valley and suddenly reality hits them in the face. Suddenly they come down, and, and as we're going to find, the disciples are arguing, and the, the scribes and Pharisees are there trying to dispute, and all of the hassles of life are there. And, and they, they come down, and they're faced with that. And we, we have the same thing. We get away, and we have a time of refreshing with God, and then we come home, and, and the dishes are high, and the lawn is high, and the kids are lost, and, and you, you don't know. And, and just realities of life come back. So that's where we pick it up in verse 14. And I'd like to go through the text and, and read through it, but also comment on it, tell it as a story again, and then come back and make some observations from the disciples, from the man, and from Jesus. So starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, and this is Jesus and the three coming down the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. 
And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, now picture this, because these are, these are, are not just some made-up stories. This is what actually happened. This is history. And so Jesus is coming down, and I can just picture them coming around a bend, and they get to where the disciples would be, and what, what they see is this crowd of people, and maybe some yelling and some disputing, and the disciples on one side and the scribes around, and, and the crowd is watching this. Because they are watching at what is happening between the existing religious system that denies Christ and the followers of Christ. And they have a a huge interest into who wins this battle. Who wins? Is this really the Messiah? Or are, are the scribes and Pharisees right? And we just need to continue what we've always done and we need to look forward to the Messiah. And that's what Jesus and the disciples come around and see crowd comes and they're amazed and and we're not quite sure why they're amazed some have said that maybe jesus still had some some residual effects from the transfiguration maybe a little glowing or light and and i don't say that in jest because remember moses and his face was glowing and they had to put a a veil over it but that's probably not where he's going because jesus had had told the three don't tell anyone what's happened until the resurrection this is probably more just a, you're back and, and an awe of who he is and an amazement of who he is, especially in light of his absence for, for a few days. And Jesus, as he always does, knows how to handle it. In verse 16, he handles it with questions. Now keep in mind, whenever Jesus asks questions, he already knows the answer. He's not ignorant. But he's a master teacher, and so often it is far better to teach people and teach our own children with questions and bringing them along to a conclusion rather than lecture. And so he asks questions that will get to the heart. And he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? Probably talking to the disciples, Why are you, what are you arguing about with the scribes? And someone from the crowd answered him. It wasn't one of the nine disciples that were left. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast, cast it out, and they were not able and the to- those two verses set up the crux of the story, the dilemma of the story. This man comes and his son is possessed, demon-possessed. Some have said, well, that's just epilepsy. The problem with that is the Bible says it was a spirit. And then a little bit later, we're going to see in verse 20, when they bring the boy to Jesus, what do we know about demons in the presence of, De- of Jesus? <laughs> they freak out. I don't know what other words to use for that. Because, because they're in the presence of the Almighty. And so they go, and that, that's what this boy does. And so we know it was a demon, and some of the effects that he, that he just took this boy through looked a lot like epilepsy. And the man came, and Jesus was up on the mountain. He wasn't there. If you notice, it says that we came to you to heal him. But Jesus isn't there, so the disciples are like, well, okay, let us do it. And if you remember, that, that's not without precedent. Because remember, Jesus sent the disciples out. And some, they were to preach the gospel of repentance. 
They were to heal and they were to cast out demons. Back in chapter 6. And so this wasn't without precedent. And the disciples tried to cast out this demon. And we see at the end of verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Verse 19, And he being Jesus, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. And we see a depth of emotion out of Jesus. We don't see him, him use the word O oh, at the beginning of a statement very, very often. And when he does, that's a sure sign that this is a very emotional statement for him. And it's mo- emotions of disappointment. And we forget sometimes that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And he had, he had emotions. And, and he sees what is happening and he is filled with a sorrow and a disappointment at this generation. Lots of talk about, well, who's he, who's he talking to? It's always a, an, an interesting dilemma when you read a text and it says like, and he answered them. Okay. Who's the them? I could say them and just talk to this side of the room because it's still plural. I could say them and talk to the whole room. So who's he talking to? And, and what's interesting here is it probably includes everybody. And there's lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons it needs to include the disciples is because the whole text is about the disciples and their struggle, struggle with faithlessness. Their struggle to rely on God. But the wording used, oh, faithless generation, that is a word that is a much broader word than could just apply to the nine. And so Jesus is looking at the whole situation and he sees his disciples and his heart breaks because he's worked with them, worked with them. And they only see dimly and they need to see fully. But then his heart breaks for the crowds who are in this dilemma and who still don't understand that he's the Messiah. And his heart, I believe, would be angry at the scribes and Pharisees, as we've seen in, in verses past, at their attempts to deceive people because they are working directly as agents of Satan. And so Jesus is heartbroken. He says, oh, faithless generation. And he comes back to the root issue, the root issue for every one of them, the root issue of why they weren't able to cast out this demon the root issue that would be in this man's life, faithlessness. Faithlessness. The opposite of relying fully on Christ. Of coming and being, having faith in Christ, a trust in Christ. And he says, oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And he knows that his time is short. And he knows this, this is more just a, a sorrowful expression saying, I don't have much more time. How long is it going to take? And we see the heart of Christ. In verse 20, the story goes on. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him being Jesus, immediately, there's that word again that Mark loves and keeps us in the action, Immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. We see, yes, this was a demon. There's no doubt. 
And Jesus asked his father. And Mark's the only one that records this part of the conversation because Mark often focuses on the relational aspect and how Jesus cared for people. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire, into water. The word there is lakes and streams, pools, to destroy him. Get the picture of what's happening here. The dad says, this has been happening from childhood. And my boy, he goes into convulsions and the demon tries to kill him when he does. Sometimes he throws him into the fire. Sometimes he throws them into water. This father has been on duty for years. Knowing that if if this happens and no one's around, his son might die. My heart breaks for him. I can't imagine if it was my boy. Or my daughter. Verse 22 goes on. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, and this is the man speaking, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And Jesus focuses again on truth and where the issue is. And when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, and and you might say, well, the crowd's already there. And and quite possibly, he had taken this boy aside and this father aside and was talking to them. and, And they see what's happening and the crowd comes. Maybe even more people were coming. When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Because Jesus doesn't want to make a scene in front of the crowd again for, for all the wrong reasons. He has a purpose. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, He is dead. And again, one of the things that we see over and over is every time a demon is, is taken out of a body or commanded to come out of a body, its last act is to try to do as much damage as it can. And we see the purpose of Satan is to defile and corrupt the image of God in any way he can. And that's still his purpose in our lives. And it's interesting because the boy was like a corpse. The people thought he was dead, just so exhausted. Verse 27, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And the words used for lifted up and arose are very similar words to the raising of Jairus' daughter, but also they, they are words that foreshadow the resurrection. And we see a, a little little glimpse of the resurrection again where a boy is... It looks dead. Now, Jesus was dead, but then the terminology is Jesus lifted him up and he arose. And that's actually a second miracle. Because not only was the Spirit cast out, but he was completely healed and restored. Amen. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, so he and his disciples went to a house after this, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They're still confused. They still don't understand what's happening. 
And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And we see Jesus talk about the power of this demon, the power of Satan. All kinds of debate, well, what does it mean, this kind? Some say, well, that means any demon. Some say, well, this one had, had, was a stronger demon that had been in this boy for so long that it had a stronger hold. But the point isn't on the this kind. The point is not that it takes prayer to drive it out. So how do we process a story like that? How do we take that and learn from the disciples and learn from the man and learn from what Jesus said? Because the story is all about faithlessness, a lack of relying on God, and Jesus' call to faithfulness, relying on God completely and trusting Him. So point number one there, warning from the disciples. Let's look at the disciples first. Beware of the temptation of self-reliance. Beware of the temptation of self-reliance. It is faithlessness. And, And that's one of the things that we need to begin to understand. When I rely on self, I'm not relying on God. And so if I'm relying on self, it is faithlessness. Even if it's not intentional, even if it is is not exactly what I'm trying to do and I'm not trying to deny Christ, if I put self on the throne and say, I can do it, that is faithlessness. Because I am not trusting in God. It's easy to fall into the trap of I can do this. And it will fail every time. It will fail every time. So look through the text. There's, there's a number of things that bring us to that. One is knowing that the disciples were able to do this before. But then if you look at, at verses like verse 18, at the end there, so I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. And Jesus' answer to that is, oh, faithless generation. And so Jesus comes back to they weren't trusting in God. Faith is pistuo in the Greek, and it literally means to trust, to to abandon my own efforts, and to allow God to work completely. It's the word we get trust from, we get faith from, we get believe from. And so Jesus is saying, you were not trusting me. You were not putting your faith in me and relying on me to do this work. And it's an interesting thing. Because the man in verse 17 says, I brought my son to you, Jesus. Jesus isn't there. He asked the disciples. The disciples say, yeah, let's do this. Then jump down to verse 28. Did you catch what the disciples asked? Very significant, their question. Why could we not cast this demon out? Why could we not do this? And their focus is still on, under our power, we're your disciples, why was this something that we failed at? And they were trying to do it on their own, which is why Jesus' answer in verse 29 is, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We'll talk about that more in the third point when we look at Jesus' answers. But his answer is, because you weren't going to the right source. 
You were trying to do this on your own. Self-confidence is a dangerous thing. Success is a dangerous thing. Because as we have success spiritually, as we have success in ministry, it becomes easier and easier to just replicate that, to do the same thing again. I did it once, it worked, I can do it again. And you know what? It's not that we say I don't have to pray this time, but we're like, I've done this before. I'm used to this. And we just don't pray about it. And we just don't seek God. And we don't have a deep conviction that I cannot do this on my own. And we end up trusting self inadvertently. The disciples encountered the result of that. They struggled with failure. A very public failure. As everyone there knew they couldn't cast out that demon. They struggled with detractors. People attacking them. Because the scribes and Pharisees watched this happen, it looks like. And then they come and attack, and it looks like their discussion was, well, okay, what power are you trying to do this under? You say Jesus is the Messiah. You say He has authority. You, His followers, can't even cast out a little demon? Interestingly enough, none of them could either. They don't go there. And so the disciples are struggling with failure. They're distracted by the detractors and arguments. They're humiliated. This is an issue of honor. We see from Jesus' response, they lacked a discipline in prayer. They forgot completely about it. Then in their response to Him, why couldn't we cast it out? They're looking for an answer. They're looking for a solution. What's the technique? And that's, that's steeped in their culture because there were all these phrases and techniques that you could use to cast out demons. And, and if you got the wording just right and the aroma just right, and we saw people in, in history, historical texts, we see people using incense as part of it. And if you get the placement just right, then the demon will go. And all of that relies on self or things. And the disciples are wanting a class in Exorcism 101. And Jesus is saying, you need a class in Prayer 101. The interesting thing is we fall into self-reliance without even knowing it. I've mentioned that. But it's our default. I think there's a blank there. It's our default. And what that means, I, I, I know that's sort of a computer term, but when something's your default, it's what you just go back to. Naturally. It's what you start with. And self-reliance, we have to understand, because of our natural man, because our hearts are desperately wicked, self-reliance is our default. Not just mine, not just yours, every person in this room. And without intentionality, that is where we will run and that is where we will live. And it's interesting to me that it took failure. It took failure for the disciples to realize they were relying on self. It took failure for them to realize they were relying on self instead of Jesus. And think about that for a minute. Think about how we view failure. 
Now, oftentimes when we fail at something, our default is to protect ourselves, right? Well, that was somebody else's fault. That wasn't me. Or, you know, circumstances just, just contributed to that. Well, what I found is God is often using failure to get our attention. To say, why don't you start looking at some things? Why don't you start trusting in me? Why don't we change some things in your life? And a completely different way of looking at failure. Now, failure is never fun. Failure is never easy. Because it strikes to our egos. And it strikes to our pride. And the disciples failed. And God said, okay, let's turn that. Let's turn that to a lesson. See, if we learn nothing from failure, then that failure is wasted. And failure is hard enough to go through that I wouldn't want to waste it. I wouldn't want to go through it again. So when we get to times where we have failed at something we've tried and we feel humiliated, that's a time to go back and say, I need to rely on God. I need to open my eyes to what He might be teaching me. That's where the disciples were at. And again, Jesus in His patience answers their questions and leads them and teaches them. A couple of other thoughts about self-reliance that I have there. The disciples are trying to deal with Satan. They're trying to deal with the supernatural. And they find, and, and Jesus says, without prayer, you can't do this. Without prayer, or literally a reliance on me, you can't do this. Now I know that not many of us are going around doing exorcisms, but every one of us is living every day fighting sin and fighting the effects of sin, and fighting the temptation and the things that Satan has put in our lives. And the same principle that Jesus is saying here applies. Sin cannot be fought on our own. It cannot be fought on our, our, with our own will. Because our will is coming from our heart, which is desperately wicked. And the natural man will never fight sin off, because the natural man loves sin. And so the only way that we can conquer sin is through complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. Maybe you've had something, an area of your life that you're you're battling and you're trying to find success in. And you're saying, okay, Lord God, I get angry all the time and, and I get impatient all the time. Help me. But so many times it's like, well, I just need to do better at this. And maybe we get an accountability partner. And I'm not saying accountability partners are bad, but you could have an accountability partner next to you with a two-by-four that hits you over the head every time you do that action. And if you don't have God involved and it's not by His strength, you will not conquer that sin. You may conquer it on the outside because you're tired of the two-by-four, but you won't conquer it on the inside. And church, I believe in the battle of sin, we are fighting it wrong. And we are missing what God wants to give us to conquer those areas of our lives from the inside, from the heart. And accountability is great, but only in cooperation with going to God and saying, I am a sinner and I need to conquer this with your strength because I am completely unable. 
then we can get somewhere with our sin. Then God can work. And so many times that's the difference between externally dealing with sin and internally dealing with it. Don't battle it on your own. Seek God's help because it has to come from the new man, from the Holy Spirit living in us. Now seek help from others. We know from God's Word, confess your sins one to another. We know that accountability is part of God's plan and community is part of God's plan, but not as the primary method, but as a way God uses, as a support of His work. One other just real practical note there. I think I asked the question, in our families, do we sometimes prevent our children from learning to rely on God? And I just want to go here briefly. We don't, this could be all morning. And maybe I'm treading where angels fear to tread. But moms and dads, especially as our children get over, older, sorry, we often keep them from relying on God by stepping in and fixing every little thing. By preventing them from ever being in a tense situation by preventing them from ever being in a situation where they might fail. And there's a balance to all this, and I know, and that's why I hesitate to even bring it up, because yes, we should protect our children, and we shouldn't put them in situations where, that, are, that are so sinful and evil that we're exposing them to some of those things. But I have seen over and over and over especially working with youth, that when those youth are walking with God and they are put in situations where they have to rely on God that are hard, that they are crying through, that they are anxious through, that those are the times that they grow more than any other time. And I've watched situations where parents have come and said, oh, we'll take you out of that situation and you'll be comfortable here. And almost every time what happens is self-reliance rears its head and there is no dependency on God. Now, as I said, we could talk about that all morning because that doesn't mean you deliberately put your kids in those situations. Here, put your hand on the stove. Psh, no, that's not what you do. But, but what areas might God, especially as our teens get older, be wanting them to learn that they have to rely on Him because they can't do it on their own? Because if we don't allow that to happen, moms and dads, they'll get in those situations when they're older and they won't know how to rely on God and we won't be there. And we are losing a generation because they don't know how to trust God. Beware of the temptation of self-reliance. It is faithlessness. I'd like to read Revelation chapter 3. One of the letters to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth, literally vomit you. And then catch verse 17, because it's about need and whether they need God. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The condemnation of that church was that they didn't need God. They had enough and they could rely on themselves. And I find that's when I fight it the most too. On things that I'm competent in. On things I've done before. On things that I have enough in. And nothing is forcing me to rely on God. And Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Beware of the temptation of self-reliance. It is faithlessness. Number two, the warning from the Father. As trials wear on, our faith can wear thin. As trials wear on, our faith can wear thin. And Mark is a master storyteller under the the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And he's weaving really two characters together. We see the disciples and we see the man. And both are struggling with faithlessness for different reasons. The disciples, because of, of not relying on God and past success and trying to do it on their own. The man... Because he's weary. He's gone through it. He's gone through it his whole life. And finally, he hears that the teacher is here. The rabbi is here. And he brings his son. And this is, I can only imagine the hope that he has in this moment. And he comes, and Jesus isn't there. That's okay. The disciples are there. And so they try to cast it out and da-da-da-da-da-da-da and it it doesn't work. What does that do to his spirit? His shred of hope has now gone. And that's another aspect of faithlessness. This by circumstances. As trials wear on, our faith can wear wear thin. Sorry. And you see the description of the boy. And Jesus is asking this out of compassion, but also to show the depth of need. Because until we see the depth of our need, we cannot appreciate the depth of his riches and his grace and his work. And the man, after all that, and after seeing the failure of the disciples, says, if you can. If you can do anything. Have compassion on us. And the wording isn't if you can and, you, and you, you could, which sometimes in the Greek we have. This is literally, I don't know if you can anymore. If you can. I'm challenged by this too, as, as a number of authors pointed out, what was the disciples' role in this man's lack of faith? See, their refusal to trust God and their failure ended up cascading into an effect on this man. And I read that with fear and trembling because us as believers and as, as sons and daughters of the King, our failure to trust God with everything is, is a message to the world that needs Christ. And I'm convicted by that to make sure, am I, am I corrupting the gospel? 
Am I giving people a clear picture of a Christ who died on the cross and can meet every need and who wants me to come to Him and depend on Him for everything? Or by self-reliance, am I keeping people from the cross? Praise God, Jesus has a plan and Jesus deals with it. And so we see his answer in verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And and I've got to just do an aside here. This is an abused verse. And and we dare not abuse it. I have heard people quote this to say, I can get a million dollars. I can get the car I want. I can get the job I want. I can get the girl I want. And, and, and all things are possible. And I just believe hard. And that, that's not what Jesus is saying. Because the context is within His will. Within relying on Him and what He wants to do. And we see that later in the New Testament. That if you ask anything according to my will, He hears you. And so don't go with this verse and use it as your magic genie to get whatever you want. That's not what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus is correcting him and saying, no, 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 the issue isn't about what I can do or can't do. That has never been at issue. I can do anything. I can do all things. The issue is always, will you depend on me? Will you have faith in me? Will you trust in me? And he brings it back to where the real source of issue is. And the man gets it. And in a fantastic verse, in verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. I trust you. Help my unbelief. And he he got it that his belief was just a small little kernel of what he needed. In the Matthew passage, Matthew goes to the mustard seed and calls it a mustard seed of faith. A small little seed of faith. And so he says, I I believe all that I can, but I recognize I am inadequate and I am desperately in need of you. So please help my unbelief. And what an example for every situation we face. Lord God, I believe you. I trust you. I know I can't do it fully. Help me. Help me. Fill in the gaps. Fill in everything. Because I can't do this on my own. Help me where I fall short. Help me where I doubt. Help me when I'm confused. Help me when I'm depressed. Help me believe. And that was the right answer. That was the answer Jesus was looking for. And even though as trials wear on, our faith can wear thin by coming back to a God that can do anything, we restore faith and we restore trust. Beware of the temptation of self-reliance. As trials wear on, our faith can wear thin. And finally, we come to Jesus' answer. God works through us when we realize we are inadequate and depend on Him. God works through us when we realize we are inadequate and depend on Him. Something you will never hear at a self-help seminar or a motivational seminar. It runs completely countercultural. To have confidence. Be bold. Step out. 
realize that you have the power within yourself. No, we don't. Yes, to fail. That's about as far as it goes. And we see throughout this text that Jesus is painting a completely different picture to his disciples because in this whole section, he's saying, the Son of Man must suffer and die. You must take up your cross. And he's teaching them how to be servant leaders. And he says it means relying on me instead of yourself. You see it in his assessment in verse 19, O faithless generation. You see it in his answer to the man. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes, who comes to God, and then Jesus heals the Son. We see it in verse 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And Jesus is coming back to what prayer is. See, prayer, the the very act of coming to God in prayer admits our need. We don't pray because we don't need. We pray when we need. Have you noticed you pray a lot more when there's greater need? And Jesus' point is, there's always greater need. So let's pray a lot more. Prayer admits our need, our lack. And secondly, it acknowledges His ability to fill that need and our dependence on it. Acknowledges his ability. The act of coming to God in prayer is the act of saying, I need you. I'm giving this to you. I cannot do this on, our, on my own. It's not some magical incantation. It's complete dependence on God. Privately and corporately. As we see both in the New Testament. We see... We see a challenge to pray on our own, but we also see challenges to pray as a church and examples of praying in a church. Even the Lord's Prayer is written all in, in, in the plural. It's written all in community because it's intended to be used as the disciples' prayer together. We see the church praying at home together when Peter was in jail. We see the church praying together with sending of Paul and Barnabas. We see the church praying together when Paul left Ephesus, when, when Paul also when Paul left Tyre to go to Jerusalem, in an incredible scene, he's going to Jerusalem. They're saying, don't, you'll be killed there. And they all knelt on the beach together and prayed. See, beach services are in the Bible. And I challenge us as a congregation to realize that prayer is our primary primary focus to be dependent on God. It's why we do prayer Sundays once a quarter. It's not just to give the teachers a break. It's because a healthy church is a praying church. Because as a church, we are showing our dependence on God. And we are following the example in Scripture. I encourage you to be part of those Sundays. They're vital to our health as a church. And finally, when I think of an attitude of prayer and an attitude of dependence, I think of any ministry we do. And just a real simple thing is every time you come to church, every time you come to Awana, every time you do any ministry, and it really it should be every time we do anything, but especially in ministry, to come and say, Lord God, I need you tonight. 
I need you tonight. I need your words. I need your insight because people I'm ministering to may be going through things that I don't know about. I need your Holy Spirit to reveal that to me and to be completely conscious of the fact and intentional of the fact that we do not minister on our own. This Wednesday night, Awana's starting, and somewhere, I didn't do an exact count, but 25 to 30 adults and, and leaders, LITs, are helping. I would challenge every one of you, before you walk onto campus, to be praying as you drive over and to say, Lord God, I need you tonight. Even if I've helped with Awana for 15 years, I need you tonight. Show me how to minister. Every time worship team gets up, every time whoever's preaching gets up, Lord God, I need you. I need you. Because when don't we need God? When don't we need God? Love the story of an author who had a picture in his office and it showed a turtle on top of a fence. Someone said, Well, that's an odd picture. He said, it reminds me the turtle can never get to the top of the fence without his, with, on his own, without help. We're the turtles. The only way we can minister well is if God puts us on the fence. Trust him. Rely on him. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would strip us of our self-reliance. If it takes failure, then let it be failure. Whatever it takes, make us a congregation that is dependent on you. That is seeking your strength for every situation we face. Forgive us of the sin of self. Forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.